Support for the Forward's Bental Brief podcast comes from listeners like you and from Edward Blank, whose generosity makes this program possible. Before we start, we've got another great podcast we want to tell you about. The last two years have brought so many changes to our personal lives, our politics, our workplaces, which is prompting a lot of us to ask, what does good leadership look like now? And to answer that question, three leaders in the Jewish nonprofit space, Ilana Ween, Golly Cooks, and Alana Kaufman, team up in their podcast, Just Leading, to uncover the crucibles of leadership and how to lead with equity and inclusion. On Just Leading, you'll hear nuanced and thought-provoking conversations with CEOs, rabbis, congresswomen, and more about all kinds of best practices that good leaders need, including how to delegate, how to set boundaries, and lead with compassion. Just Leading is the leadership guidebook we've been waiting for. Listen and subscribe to Just Leading wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Gina, I got a question for you. All right. Would you rather move five times in five years or live in an awesome apartment that's perfect in every way for five years? Yes. Except (laughs) it's with your ex. Still, yes. Moving is the worst activity on the planet. I mean, I just can't imagine. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't even matter the X, actually, because moving is so horrific. Yeah, it's bad. It's bad. For me, it's like, which X? <laughs> is it the one who got away? Because, okay, I can manage that. Here on A Bindle Brief, we've talked about love. We've talked about family. We've talked about sex. Obviously, what comes next? Real estate. We're going to talk about real estate. So for this real estate conversation, for part one, Lynn and I are going to take a crack at answering this real estate oriented question. Part two, we're going to turn to the forwards archivist. Hannah is going to come back for some wisdom from the archive. And for part three, we're going to get a third opinion from a very special guest. As a reminder, we can't do an advice podcast without questions to answer. Whether your questions are secular or spiritual, sensational or mundane, spanning generations or confined to one single text message, we're interested in all of it. So please email your question to bintel at forward.com. That's B-I-N-T-E-L at forward.com. Or you can give us a call at 201-540-9728. Again, that's 201-540-9728. 9728, your voice, our podcast, and an episode for the ages. So let's get right to it. Here's our question. Dear Bentle, in my town, there's intense competition for real estate. And as such, most people seem to find things by word of mouth before they're even listed. One such opportunity came up when I found out my neighbor was selling his house. Over a kid's birthday party, I mentioned the listing to a friend who informed me that our mutual friend, who is very actively looking to buy, would appreciate the tip before the house goes on the market. Another parent at the party overheard our conversation. He called me right after to tell me he also has a friend, someone I don't know, who's looking to buy a house. Within an hour of the overheard conversation, that friend had called me to inquire about my neighbor's house. 
So now, a stranger and a friend would both like me to introduce them to the seller so they can try to get a jump on this property. I have no reason to think anyone is better than the other, but I wonder where my responsibility lies. Do I owe the person who's a casual friend any head start over the person who's a stranger to me? Signed, On the Fence. First of all, your first call should be to a producer because this is an awesome reality show. <laughs> Kids' birthday party, conversation, real estate wars. I'm watching. When I first read the part about the friend's friend, stranger person getting involved, I'm like, who does this person, th- who do both of these people think they are? Th- just to, what? St- what? Asking a stranger to make to do a favor? And then I, then I thought, why not? As long as you're nice and not obnoxious, in many realms, not just real estate, that kind of kind of um, aggressiveness can be rewarded. Why not? Ask nicely. Why not? And that is, you know, look, I've I'm I'm experienced in uh, buying and renting in New York City, and I don't get involved in internecine bloodbaths, but I do know that there is a level at which I'm not gonna say all is fair, but a lot is fair, and so in that from that lens. I think all these folks, you know, have a case for, you know, asking this person for the letter writer for a little help. And by the way, our sources tell us that the letter writer is a dude, hence our use of the pronoun he. And I think it does depend a little bit on your market, how much is fair and how much room there might be to privilege someone else over another. But I'll tell you that I live in South Carolina we don't have these these battles over property and no one's coming to the table with a million dollars over asking or $20 over asking, right? It's like we I don't have this experience, but I'll say that, you know, when I when I read the letter from on the fence, my first thoughts were what was what would be the things I would consider in this situation, right? So like what's important to me and I'd be thinking about who do I want to be my neighbor? What kind of community am I trying to build? Who do I want to be in my in my realm and that comes to me. And then the other piece is, you know, like you were saying, people can be aggressive to the victor go the spoils, right? Like it's all's fair kind of thing. But then that also means that there's a lot of power and privilege that on the fence has right now that he didn't even know he had before he went to the kids' birthday party, right? He was just Joe Schmo with some juice boxes and now he's <laughs> become like this interlocutor to the fixer. Desperate house right. He's become like he's become this um middleman all of a sudden right but like actually who 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 wants to get the house and so i would ask the questions is there one of these folks that i might want to privilege is it a young family is it someone who's been locked out of the housing market is it someone with intergener you know with a multi-generational family who needs that property i would ask these questions and decide from there because those kinds of things are important to me Right. Is it someone who would not have been on the guest list for the birthday party? So wouldn't even have been in the social or LinkedIn network directly of the folks who were there. It makes me think about a couple of things. When my dad was selling his parents' house outside Atlanta, this was you know 25 years ago, that neighborhood had been, to put it politely, very racially segregated with his family being white. And when he, when the time came for him to put the house on the market, it was still very segregated. And he, his biggest fear 
was that the first family that would come to him would be black. And he, uh, that sounded wrong, but you know what I mean, was that he would be in the position of knowing that he needed to do the right thing and even aggressively seeking to do the right thing, but at the same time knowing that that would be an extremely aggressive move in terms of the neighborhood, knowing the kind of pushback he would have to deal with and wondering how he would manage that. Fortunately, spoiler, it didn't happen. People who were connected already to the neighborhood came through. It seemed like an obvious choice. He dealt with it. Goodbye. I also remembered that when I just thought of this, when we rented our first apartment, my friends and I, in Park Slope, Brooklyn, which was far less competitive then than it is now, this was in 1994, the landlord had no reason to rent to us. None of us came to New York with a job. And we had this kind of shocking moment when we signed the lease. We were like, why is he renting it to us? And we were like, we really hope the alternative was not not white people. We have no reason to believe, like, we have no evidence for that. But, like, the only kind of horrifying explanation we could come up with was, like, is it because we're white? Ah! And, I mean, you were probably right. I mean, whiteness is an amazing tool and privilege and power to have. Like, white people, even with no money, no backing, so to speak, are still better than a Black family. And that has really governed how we do property in this country for a long time. So I'm not surprised. So I want to also just quickly say that when I got the question from On the Fence, I was like, oh, I bet the Talmud says something. The Talmud does spend a lot of time, spends a full tractate specifically on property. So we know that as, a, as Jews, we find it historically important and the land has always been important to us. I'm also going to lift up how we make space and how we make room for us as a community, how we make space to be Jews is important. And I think a lot about Jewish flight, Jewish history, especially in this country, and what property and home ownership and land has meant. You think about moving to the suburbs. And I just think that's an important concept to lift up here. We don't know if on the fence, if this is like a Jewish community, but I think that this is a very Jewish question. Yeah. Just because a particular market is competitive and even expensive doesn't mean that the values of place and space don't exist in that market. Right. Okay, so Gina, they're on the fence. Are you? What do you think? So my answer is that on the fence probably does not feel as if he owes any one party anything right? He's got a stranger, a friend, and a neighbor all in the mix, and he just wants to do what's right. For me, doing what's right requires answering some more questions about who's in the mix and who wants the house and what do they want it for and who's going to be their neighbor. Information that he didn't disclose to us and that he said didn't really matter, but I actually think that it does. If he's going to actually decide to privilege one of them over another, then he would need to decide why and figure out um, what was important to him. So Gina, you're saying we don't know the details, but it would be important that the letter writer should figure out what are your values and how do you want to promote them or push them here? In other words, if you happen to know that there's an opportunity to offer an opportunity to someone who has historically been denied it, then let's do it in this case, whether it's the friend or the stranger. Correct. So that's kind of the, there's there's kind of two ways to, to look at this. One is, so there's a difference between equity, which is what you're suggesting, 
push promoting equity and equality, mm-hmm. which is offering that, you know, everyone gets the same crack at the same thing. Right. So that actually leads me to I was I was really puzzling over this question and wondering, is there something we don't know? about, I don't know, real estate that would, <laughs> that would, that would play a role here. And so I asked my mom's friend, Judy, as one does, um, who PS is a realtor in Massachusetts and she offered a different path. Here's what she wrote to me as a longstanding and sometimes sitting, Judy is funny, realtor in a fiercely competitive locale. Let me remind folks that the more offers the seller receives, the better outcome for the seller outcome is not just dollars. It can also mean conditions. Must the seller wait for a buyer to get approval? Can the buyer close when the seller wants or needs to close? Is the buyer waiving home inspection? Yada, yada, yada. So to on the fence, the answer is easy, she says. Tell both. And to all involved, Zygazant. <laughs> so, so right, right? That's the equality piece that you were lifting her up, right? Tell both. But I'll say, Lynn, I'm still like the call to me from my perspective is still you've got some power and some privilege in this position that you didn't know you had before that birthday party. I would use it. I would ask a couple of questions and figure out how I would use it. And then I would do it. I agree with you. That is what that is clearly the way. And I would say the Judy Gambit is plan B because there is the chance there is the outside chance that when the letter writer thinks about it or even does a little research that he still doesn't know who has more privilege or less privilege because you know we we don't always know from first glance maybe he's afraid of making assumptions in that case if the decision is not comfortable or clear you got your third way the judy gambit the other alternative lots of possibilities for on the fence is that you could make the connection for both but then put in a good word for one of them Ah, yes, that's the uh, Jagina gambit. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Thanks, Judy. Thanks, Judy. So few things are as inextricable from the turn of the century Jewish immigrant experience to New York than real estate. So with great love, anticipation, and curiosity, we turn to our favorite archivist, Hannah Pollock. Hi. Hi. Hi, Gina. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Hello. Nice to be here. Yeah. So what you got? It's on, on its face. It's kind of a, it's a simple-ish question. But as Gina pointed out, there are lots of deep threads running through it. So what did it make you think about from the archives? So, um... Interesting, because you wouldn't think back in the day that with the waves of immigration, uh, major metropolises that Jewish immigrants are coming from Eastern Europe, you, you wouldn't the first thing you wouldn't think of was real estate in the way that we think about it today or in the way that the letter writer talked about it. But um, what I found was in 1922, a letter that we've been calling those Montrealer sisters. It's about a pair of sisters in Montreal, Canada another major Jewish metropolis that had a huge waves of immigration. And I guess the twist would be that the social contract that was, you know, that uh, you guys were talking about um, in terms of what's the right thing to do plays out here in terms of a very common turn of events, which is how many immigrants came to other immigrants, like boarding houses, right? Boarding, but, but most likely cramped 
tenement apartments, right? No running water. Maybe they're sleeping on a plywood board over a bathtub in the kitchen, right? But they're sharing space, most likely, with somebody who immigrated earlier. In this case of the sisters, one sister arrived and received a, you know, a heart-wrenching letter from her sister who remained in Eastern Europe that she wanted to come over. And at that point, the drama sort of unfolds, as you can imagine. So I'm just going to read like a little bit about it and just give us a little taste of what happens when you have to share real estate for affordability and for your, for your life circumstances. And that's the choice you have. So, uh, you know, they write into the Bintel brief in 1922, a year and a half ago when it was possible to emigrate, I received a letter from my sisters and that she's practically barefoot, naked, and starving. And in Yiddish, this was, and she asked me to bring her and her partner over here. I immediately sent them a ship's ticket and enough money for their expenses. And so, you know, as soon as they arrive, she tells, you know, how it unfolded. For six entire months, they lived with us in our home and didn't spend a cent. After six months, they paid a third of the expenses. And now I want to convey how they acted towards me. They lied to me worse than strangers. In Yiddish, that was, Zumir seinen falsch, erger wie fremde Menschen. And we know in Yiddish, when you say fremde, usually you're referring to the world outside of Jewish culture. Those are the fremde mansion, right? So she felt that she was being treated worse than strangers by family, by people they had offered real estate to by their family. So, you know, the letter goes on. Over time, uh, you know, uh, things changed. Her husband was unemployed and they had some difficulties. It wasn't their best time. And they asked the relatives who were now, you know, residing with them, her sister and the uh, sister's partner, if they could start contributing. And a fight broke out and it ended up with them moving out. And the question to the editor is, what's my responsibility here to my family member that I took in, offered real estate, a home? What do I owe this person? Do I have to make amends? Do I have to see this kind of sister? And, you know, do I even have to talk well about her? And um, the forward in short, you know, kind of goes like life is short. And also, what's the bigger picture? What environment are we creating for the next generation to come up into? Do they want to be around a family that's not talking to each other? Or really, is this such a big deal? Mm. You know, can mm. this not be resolved? And they don't want their, the, the next generation to learn that the only way to resolve mm -hmm. is to, right. to quarrel and to separate. So the forward kind of ends with, with an upbeat where they're like, you know, now that you're living apart, you should actually get along well and reminds them that they're sisters and that, you know, all told the big picture, they've had more good experiences, hopefully, than bad, and that these things are going to happen, but it's petty and it's not a good look. Mm. Indeed. Roommate from hell, can I just say? <laughs> the point about them being gone and the relationship getting better feels really live. And it feels like that actually, you know, them being out is probably the best thing that could have happened for their family and for their community to, you know, to diminish some of yeah. that turmoil. Yeah, there must, I'm sure they're recreating issues from childhood, et cetera, et cetera. But that's why, that's why I think the point that the forward made is so deep and, and excellent because the forward puts it into a bigger picture that's really hard to argue with. Think of the children, you know, and they're right, I think. You know, it's true they said think of the children, but I guess I also heard it as like really in considering the real estate discussion we were having earlier, 
of the, the next generation millennials, right? This is really in the public conversation. The issue of real estate is just not available. So I actually heard it that way too, of like, you know, think of the next generation and what we're passing on in terms of our values, like in the big, big picture, right? It's, and it starts at home. It starts with the family squabble. And to bring it back to on the fence, I think this letter is a reminder that whatever the choice between the friend and the stranger, it does come back to the deepest values of it's not either or who do I like better? Who have I no longer? It's what community am I creating? Not just by choosing an individual person, but by how, how we express our values in this community. What's right? What glues together a neighborhood? What glues together a society? What's our, what neighborhood are we leaving for the children in the neighborhood? All of those things, they may not all be related to this one individual decision, but they are controlled by this one individual decision, but they can guide. Hannah, thank you for joining us. We will see you for the next episode. Thanks, Gina. Thanks, Lynn. And we will be right back after this break. I'm Rachel Fishman Federson, publisher and CEO of The Forward. If you like this podcast, the best way to support it is to donate to The Forward. We're a nonprofit and we rely on listeners like you. Please give whatever you can by going to forward.com slash donate. I'm Jody Rudoran, editor-in-chief of The Forward. If you want to keep up with what American Jews are talking about, you need to get The Forward's free daily newsletter. Sign up today by going to forward.com slash newsletters. Today's question is baked into the history of Judaism. But to me, this question feels more Talmud-y than Torah-y. There's so much Talmud commentary on property rights and ownership. And when I did my own cursory scan, I found a few things, but I'm not a rabbi. Which is why, today, we have a rabbi. Yes, that's why our guest today is someone who can speak to these ancient biblical disputes. Hey, Rabbi, we'd like to welcome Rabbi Paul Arberman to the show. Hi, Paul. Hello, happy to be here. Hi, Paul. Welcome. Welcome to Mental Brief. Thank you. So, Paul, you're a rabbi, and like so many of us, you have also had side hustles. Can you tell us about a hustle you've had that could be relevant to today's conversation? A number of years ago, I uh, got a real estate license, and I thought I would uh, be working with a lot of Americans or Anglos um, in the city of Modi'in or in Israel in general. And I didn't, I didn't explore it enough. I, I didn't really take it much farther than that. But you know a little something about housing and real estate from ancient history <laughs> to the present. Sure, sure. I got my license. <laughs> and, uh, and you also, as you just noted, you also are coming, coming to us from Modine in Israel across geographies and time zones. So thank you. So yeah, let's, let's discuss. All right. So Rabbi Paul, we might say all's fair in real estate, right? Like, you know, especially folks who live in hot markets, whoever gets their first gets their first. But I'm pretty sure that Torah and at least Talmud don't say that. They don't think that all is fair and property. There are some guidelines and rules some stipulations. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what did the sages say about property and land ownership and how we acquire the places where we live? Well, I think there's two things going on here. One is um, in the question that was uh, written, there's obligations to friends and uh, close associates. And then there's issues of like obligations of a professional real estate broker. 
And I think they're different. I think if you're talking about professional practice, a real estate agent has obligations to be fair, has obligations to be fair in the marketplace. But a friend does not necessarily have those obligations. There's no official definition of market. The market doesn't start when it's advertised. It could start at the party. So having a discussion with a friend is absolutely legitimate. And I do not think you're bound by any contracts. What bothers me a little bit is do you end up discriminating without intending to? If you are talking to your friend and then lo and behold, the whole neighborhood is going to Jewish white people because it's all an inner circle type thing. It's interesting that you made the comment about not wanting to intentionally discriminate. But also, like I'm also holding that in Orthodox communities, proximity and land and place and space are really important. And as someone who has a Black modern Orthodox family or a biracial Black modern Orthodox family, I'm thinking about what we would need to be able to create that space and place that works for us, that allows us to get to shul. So I'm, I'm, I'm hearing not wanting to have a neighborhood where we're intentionally discriminating against, but also holding that like within community, sometimes that place and space has a higher value or importance because of how we treat community and getting to and from shul and Shabbat Chagim and all of those things. Everything you're saying is correct. And I wouldn't say that it happens intentionally. I think it happens unintentionally. I just, I question myself, what responsibilities do we have to be fair in the marketplace? Because it's just talking about selling a property. I think what happens in this case is I'm passing on both people's information to the seller. They will make the right decision. And I'm even okay saying, uh, by the way, I happen to know one of the potential buyers, but make the best decision for yourself. If, if we change the situation to like a job opportunity, then it becomes a little bit more, not disturbing, but like urgent in that you do not want to discriminate and you do want to um, give people a fair opportunity to apply for a job. So I would not want to crumple up one person's resume and then promote someone else's resume. But this case seems like fair market things will happen here. Paul just, uh, that's another vote for the Judy Gambit, Gina. Yes. Wait, the Gina twist on the Judy Gambit, perhaps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Paul, are there are there examples that, that this made you think of, of competition for land or property in the in the Talmud that can shed any light or that added provide a different angle? I did not find in the sources specific things about selling properties. But what I did find was lots of language about not giving preference to one person. They actually t say it in a backwards kind of way. They say, don't give preference to a poor person just because they're poor, which I thought was interesting. They're already assuming that you will have a sort of a softness in your heart for helping somebody who's disadvantaged. And they're saying justice cannot be perverted by anything. You wouldn't want to say there's a disagreement between a rich person and a poor person. The money, $100 means nothing to this rich person. I'm just going to rule in favor of the poor person. But 
the Talmud says you, you should not do that. The Torah says you should not do that. Give everyone a fair opportunity, a fair share. So that applies not just in court, but in land acquisition as well. Um, there's a teaching of Dina de Malchuta Dina, which means that you have to follow local, let's say, uh, civil business law of the nation that you're living in. So if the real estate agent is bound by certain responsibilities or strictures, then in Judaism, we would adopt those if you're living in New York City. If there is such a thing as fair market announcement, then in Judaism, we would say you have to follow those laws because of Dina de Malchuta Dina. The law of the land is your law as well. Just to go back, maybe I missed this, but can you explain why the Talmud said that you should not just decide to give the money in question to the poor person? It's a perversion of justice. You think that you're doing the right thing by helping someone, but that's not how the decision should be made. Of course, we should have a balance of justice, tzedek, and rachamim, mercy. So we're not looking to be cruel in the courtroom, but you have to make the decision based on what is correct in the law, not based on your feelings about the poor person or the rich person. And the rabbis say, do not do that, only on the basis of, of the facts of the case. And I'll just say the basis of the facts of the case which are looked at through the lens of the law of the land, laws can change. Laws do change over time. And so from both a Talmudic perspective, as well as just a living and life perspective, handing over both names feels like the way to go. However, as Lynn and I discussed earlier, when it comes to housing, and you mentioned, Paul, jobs, right? Opportunity. In this country, so much opportunity has been locked up and locked away. If On the Fence might know a little bit of information about either of those two potential buyers that might unlock some opportunity or unlock some equity, that might be something he could bring to the conversation with the seller as well. So I think we have, each one of us has a personal responsibility to sort of raise our consciousness or look at the larger picture and say, we have to make some promotion of inviting women to be on a panel when it just it just turns out by chance that like again and again it's all it's all men it's all me- <laughs> men on the panel it's so weird i have it know. it's so weird so i again i don't think it's it's not a legal question but i do think it's an ethical question and i think each one of us has a responsibility to sort of raise our consciousness to the larger picture and say how can we bring a more equal access to opportunities, whether it's buying a house or getting a job. Rabbi Paul, thank you for joining us today. It was a hard question. It's not easy because it doesn't rise to the level of legal. It makes it a little bit too easy to say, well, you don't really have an obligation here. You just, you know, you try to do the right thing. I also thought it was unethical to write such a long question that was so wordy. (laughs) (laughs) That's the unethical part. Okay, on the fence? You off the fence now? And, as always, we're finishing the episode with... A Bento Blitz! 
Here we go. A friend of mine likes to pride herself on how Jewishly clueful she is, but she keeps pronouncing Hebrew words and names wrong. Do I tell her? Okay, I get how this could drive someone crazy. It would drive me crazy. I'm that nerd who's always biting my tongue and thinking, actually, there is a difference between further and farther. But I would ask myself, how high are the stakes? Is it my irritation or is it actually her problem? Is she up for a job at the JCC? Is she running for a synagogue president? Then it would be relevant. Then I would find a nice way to tell her. Otherwise, I'll bite my tongue. I think it's sort of like the linguistic version of having spinach in your teeth. I'd probably try to tell them. I feel like I would want to know, especially if it were something I was doing all the time. Spinach. Fair. Now you've all heard how good we are at answering questions fast. So send us your questions. Make them short and snappy, and we will answer like a bolt of lightning, cutting through your storm of confusion. Tell us a little. Tell us a lot. We'll find something worthwhile to say about it. Write in to bental at forward.com. That's B-I-N-T-E-L at forward.com. Or to quote your mother, call us 201-540-9728. I cannot believe we spent a whole season without thinking of that line. (laughs) Someone please fire all of us. podcast is a product of The Forward. Our editor-in-chief is Jody Rudoran, and our CEO and publisher is Rachel fishman Betterson. This is produced by Wonder Media Network, and our producer is Alessandra Wollner. Our production assistant is Carmen Borca-Carrillo. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks again to Edward Blank, whose generosity makes this show possible.